Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I hope you've noticed that even though we attempt to present some big ideas on Spirit in Action, We often concentrate on the personal human side related to those big ideas. Today, the big idea is Zionism, but we're going to approach it through the people who wrote essays in Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation. Ashley will be doing this today and in a second program as well, since I think the personal stories we'll be hearing really enlighten the truths around the terrible situation in the Middle East, particularly the plight of the Palestinians. We'll be visiting with three guests today, all of them Jewish, all contributors to the book, and we'll meet a couple more next week. First up is Chris Godshall, currently in law school at Georgetown. Chris, thanks for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me. You're at law school, right? I am. How far into this are you and what got you there? So I am about to finish my second year, so one year left, assuming we all graduate on time with everything that's going on. I'm in the midst of digital law right now. But before I came to law school, I actually did Teach for America, and I taught two years and then stayed for one extra year teaching largely refugee students and the students of of either immigrants themselves or the the children of immigrants from the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico and uh, some students from Haiti. I think that like a lot of what led me to law school was the combination of my activism in, in undergrad and then my experience with my students. I just felt that the law was really the best place I could be to influence their lives in a positive way. We are talking today about Zionism, Judaism, the overlap and the differences between the two. So could you talk about your own journey to it? Sure. So as I say in my chapter, like my father is not Jewish, and my mother is. And so growing up, my experience with Judaism was, was somewhat tangential. I interacted with my mom's family, which existed on, I think, the margins of, of Jewish life there. My mom's mother is not religious, and my mom is not particularly religious either. And so Christianity sort of dominated my initial upbringing until I got to like maybe my late tween, early teen years when I started to sort of question my, you know, like any 13-year-old does, like question my, you know, my, my beliefs and my parents' beliefs. And so that led me to an exploration of my Jewish heritage and, and some more interactions with my mom's family. And that culminated in when I turned 18. The end of my 18th year, the beginning of my 19th year was when I went on Birthright, which is, if you're not aware, a, a program for Jewish students mostly, but you know, Jewish people under the age of like 25 or so from anywhere in the world to take a free trip to Israel and you stay there for 10 days and you tour. And that was really the beginning of my engagement, like really, really strong engagement with my, the Jewish side of my heritage. That was at the end of your freshman year at college already. And so you had had a, a Jewish roommate, I understand. Yeah, so he's actually still one of my best friends. That was a big part of my discovery of that, or not so much discovery, like I already knew, but my sort of owning of it was through conversations with my roommate. It's tricky for, I think, the children of interfaith families to solidly identify with one or the other, Um, especially, I think, in Judaism where membership issues are very fraught. I'm lucky in the sense that 
I'm Jewish through my mother's side because that doesn't really raise any questions. But, you know, patrilineal Jews have a really tricky time um, and even need to convert if they want to, you know, participate in any sort of like orthodox institutions. So he helped me to sort of like understand the politics of membership and sort of to own my place as a member of the Jewish community, despite the fact that one, my father is not Jewish and two, my name is Christopher, which is arguably the least Jewish name you could you could possibly have. A little bit more about the family you come from. So you've got a father who is Christian and he's practicing, he's into it, and a mother who is Jewish. She's got the lineage, she's got the genetic structure, but she hasn't been practicing. And, and you nor your grandmother? Yes. How much did it affect you to not feel comfortable within Christianity because you were realizing you were gay? I mean, I think at first it was a lot. I mean, it's it's tricky, especially when, because I, I mean, I knew I was gay when I was seven. You know, I think every every gay person goes through sort of phases of acceptance and you sort of, there was definitely a stage where I remember being very young and like still not really understanding my own beliefs and, and praying that I would not be gay because I didn't want to you know, I had never heard anything good about it. Not necessarily from my family, like they were fine. Like I, there was not a lot of prejudice there, but I think that like just in the larger community, my dad's friends and co-religionists, I guess, you know, I hadn't heard anything good. And obviously in sort of evangelical Christianity, the default position is is not exactly friendly towards gay people. So I, I definitely struggled with that. And I think that that's part of what pushed me, I think, to explore a different sort of option for my identity that also raises questions. I mean, it's not that it's not that Judaism is some utopian ideology that, that accepts everybody and doesn't have its own issues with homophobia and other things like that. But it was probably one of the triggers for me to exit identification with Christianity and reorient myself towards my exploration of my Jewish heritage. And I should say then and even now, like it was never really religious. I'm not religious at all. It was very much just a sort of rejection of Christianity as it existed in my childhood was sort of the push out. But that doesn't necessarily mean that my exploration of Judaism was religious in nature. It wasn't really. It was partially to the extent that Jewish cultural institutions are intertwined with religion. But it, I don't identify as religious and I don't see my Jewish identity as being wrapped up in Judaism as a religion. Well, let's talk a little bit about your birthright trip. In the chapter that you've added to the book, you talk about really finding yourself, kind of having your own your own improvised bar mitzvah. You talk about, okay, now I'm Jewish. Now I've really made it here. And yet you left with doubts. Could you talk about that experience during Birthright? Sure. So all of those things are true. I think that the way that I interpret them has changed. Birthright was definitely the pinnacle of my original exploration of my Jewish heritage. I say something in the chapter about how, like, what better place to explore it than the Jewish state, right? It's hard to not feel that when you're there. After the bar mitzvah on Mount Masada, or before, I, I don't remember the time, but, you know, around that time, you, you, they have everyone go to the side of the mountain and you scream, Am Yisrael Chai, which means, like, the people of Israel live. And it's a very, like, communal experience, and it's hard not to get swept up in it. And I definitely felt part of that. And I felt part of the Jewish community more largely. And it's, and it's reinforced by the narrative of birthright of come live here. You can live here if you want to. It's for you. So I felt all those things. I think what's changed is that I realized that the purpose of birthright and what, how I see my trip now is not to actually engender that feeling. 
it's to associate that feeling with Zionism, with the state of Israel as it's currently formulated, and to produce the sort of blind, I think, if I could, you know, use a a kind of harsh word, but blind faith in this idea of Israel as the sort of culmination of Jewish history and the central unifying aspect of modern Jewish identity. So while I felt all those things, and it was my entrance point into sort of my own sort of solid identification with Israel, it sort of reversed over time. And now, you know, I entered this sort of identity and this identification with Judaism wrapped up in all of those things. And now it's, you know, now my identity is precisely the opposite. You know, I participate mostly in anti-Zionist Jewish institutions, and that's become my Jewish community and my Jewish identity. It was simultaneously like a, a really profound and useful experience, but also, you know, one that I, that I look back on and I see very differently than what I, when I was experiencing it. In your narrative, you talk about the niggling doubts that you had even during your birthright trip. They surfaced and you were looking for an identification. And J Street, you connected with. Tell our listeners what J Street is. A lot of people, if they're not Jewish, probably haven't even connected with it. Yeah, so J Street is, is a lobbying organization, more or less. It's an advocacy organization that is somewhat critical of Israel. It is anti-occupation, and it is critical of, of many Israeli policies vis-a-vis the Palestinians, both within Israel and in the occupied territories. But it is a Zionist organization, nevertheless. It does not have any question that Israel as a Jewish exclusive state can exist. It doesn't have, it doesn't question the sort of Jewish and democratic descriptor of Israel. You know, and that's fundamentally why I and many others, honestly, who ended up in, in JVP and other non or anti Zionist institutions, you know, stopped participating in J Street things because they, in my opinion, when I was there, I saw it very much as a, a band-aid on deeper issues, deeper problems with, with Israel and Zionism itself. And I think that, yeah, honestly, if J Street were to have its way and all of its policies were to be implemented, I actually think it would, it would do more to obscure those issues than it would actually to solve any of them. So my understanding, Chris, is that your doubts about it, I mean, you, the first big event with J Street made it clear to you that, no, that's not where you belong. Yeah. So your next clearness, I think, happened to be JVP, Jewish Voice for Peace, and you decided to start up a chapter at Columbia. So what happened with that effort? So I was actually connected to another anti-Zionist Jewish student by someone who was in uh, J Street as well, who had the same sort of realization that I did. And so my friend and I, we met and we realized that there are people, there are Jews who want to participate in Jewish life at the time on campus, but who felt alienated by the sort of explicit Zionism of most of it. And we realized that if we wanted to have any sort of community, we were going to have to make one ourselves. We had heard of JVP and she had already done a lot of the research for how to start one. She was kind of on her way to doing this. I joined her and we and we were able to, to start the chapter together. And we found at first, I think there was maybe one or two other, other students. I mean, it was really just me and her for half of this time. We tried at first to enter the Hillel, which is like the Jewish Student Center. We, you know, they recognize most of the Jewish community student organizations. They were not going to uh, give us funding or, or allow us to use their facilities to meet. That became very clear very quickly. So we sort of, we, we sort of gave up on that road and we just went through the normal sort of club recognition process that the school does. 
And it was sort of an if you build it, they will come sort of moment. You know, it turned out that there were lots of Jews on campus who felt the same way. And, and I think an increasing number, especially this was back in 2014. So this Operation Protective Edge, was it, that, that was the 2014 assault on Gaza. You know, it's bad when you mix up your various assaults on a people trapped in a 10 square mile piece of land. But anyway, a lot of people, I think, became disillusioned with Israel after that, just like they have in, you know, you know after Lebanon, after the 20, 2008 Gaza thing. So a lot of students, I think, came to us after that. And it kind of blew up. And, it, you know, over time, it, it sort of went from two to 10 to 20. And now, as I understand it, it's, it's really a thriving organization. It's been five years, but it's, you know, it's still going strong. And there's a whole new generation of students there who have that place now. And we're very, we're very proud of them. Talk a little bit more about your continuing journey and where you see your relationship to Judaism and to Zionism. You're anti-Zionist now, right? Chris Godchel is clearly anti-Zionist. Yes, no mistake about it. I, I think, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I mentioned at the end of my chapter that for me, there's now my Jewish identity demands anti-Zionism now because I won't stop identifying with my Jewish identity. It is a huge part of who I am now. It is something I'm very proud of. I mean, it's like there are generations of my family going back however long, you know, who have lived in this community that has gone through so much. And there's, and, and it's a, there's a proud sort of culture associated with that. And I'm proud to be a part of that. And I'm not willing to give that up. At the same time, you know, I have political and moral views about how people should be treated and about how states should constitute themselves and how we should deal with the history and legacy of colonialism. And they are completely, that those views are completely opposite of the logic of Zionism. And so the only way for me to do both is to sort of disentangle those two things. I, in order to live my life the way that I want to, need a Judaism that is not associated with Zionism. I need a Jewish identity that is not, that does not require identification with Israel. And being anti-Zionist for me, and I want to make this very clear because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what anti-Zionism is. It has nothing to do with Jews shouldn't live in Israel, or there should be no Jewish sort of institutions anywhere. It's like, it, it's not this sort of anti-Semitic idea that people try to, I think that Zionists in, in a lot of cases try to paint it as. It very much for me just means that I reject the idea of an ethnically exclusive state in the territory of another group of people, because the only way to make that happen is by expulsion and permanent dispossession. It is impossible in any other way. It's impossible. And no Zionist has an answer for how to address the historic wrongs of expulsion and occupation. None of them. It just doesn't exist. And so I have to be anti-Zionist. I have to be. Because you were not raised Jewish and you weren't surrounded by Jewish community with the intensity that a lot of people who are Jewish does that mean that you have some different feeling about, or maybe I, I think it could just be a, that you didn't grow up with the kind of communicated PTSD from the Holocaust, the Shoah, that kind of carried forward, you know, we are people who are going to be exterminated, we can only depend on ourselves idea. Do you feel like maybe there's some difference in you? I mean, obviously, there's lots of other Jews who are part of Jewish Voice for Peace who did grow up in those families with those strong identities. Uh, how do you relate to that idea? And what do you think that 
often Israel's existence is justified by the fact that, look, at when you kill six million Jews here, you've got to pay for it somewhere. It's a tricky question. To some extent, my experience is different. It was not, you know, a constant refrain. That being said, it was there. You know, I have family who was killed and, you know, my family came to the United States pre-Holocaust. They were expelled from Russia in a, in a pogrom. So, like, I'm not unfamiliar and I wasn't unfamiliar with these things as I was making my sort of, as I was engaging with Judaism. But it certainly was not at the same level for the same extended amount of time at the very formative sort of early years where people are in summer camps sort of learning about Israel, learning about the Holocaust. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that. It was more distant and it was, my knowledge of it was very academic more than this sort of cultural transmission. To that extent, yeah, it's different. At the same time, it can't be forgotten, I think, that Zionism and the logic of Zionism is very much alive in Christian communities as well. And in many cases, as strong, if not stronger, for different reasons, of course, but it is, it's there. So I, it's not that I wasn't exposed to it, but it's something I thought a lot about as I have formulated my opinions, because I don't want to be insensitive to the feeling. I get the feeling. I understand the idea that people are afraid of these things. And I, you know, living in 2020, you know, I've been afraid of rising, you know, strains of anti-Semitism. It's a real thing. And I've had a few experiences that like, you know, I've had weird interactions on trains while wearing my, you know, a Magan David necklace. Like I understand that anti-Semitism is real. My disagreement is simply how it is addressed. I think it is addressed with solidarity with other groups that are experiencing what is really just in the end white supremacy in other ways. Like, you know, this, this rise of white nationalism has strains of anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, all sorts of homophobia, all sorts of things. It is through solidarity with those groups that we sort of create a world where those sorts of ideas are not welcomed, are not accepted. That world doesn't exist yet. It has not existed and using the logic of nationalism and ethnic exclusivity seems to me to be counterproductive to the eradication of how can you use the ideas that animate white supremacy to protect yourselves from white supremacy? It just seems to be a, a self-perpetuating idea. I just reject the idea that that's the best way to do it. It's just not. Frankly, I, I think that Israel in many situations makes Jews less safe. I think that Israel, when it ignores international law, when it massacres people in Gaza, and then says it's doing so to protect Jews around the world, I think that that is extremely dangerous because it, it serves to associate all Jews with these heinous acts that are just objectively wrong. I'm sympathetic with the feeling, but I just don't understand the answer being an ethnically exclusive state that uses military <laughs> violence, you know, state violence to suppress people who don't agree with it. I just, I just think that doesn't make sense to me that that's the best way to counter anti-Semitism in, in the modern world when we have, we have examples of how to combat colonialism, racism, homophobia, it exists. We just need to plug into it. Folks, we've been speaking with Chris Gottschall, who contributed one of the chapters in the book, Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation. And Chris, I want to thank you for inspecting your life, finding your integrity, finding your community. I think that's really important, especially in the U.S., where we lack so much in terms of community roots. And forming the Jewish Voice for Peace chapter at Columbia, then doing two years of Teach for America, and now in law 
law school. I think that obviously you're putting your life at service of making this world a better place, which I don't think a person can do really well without self-examination. I appreciate so much that you've done that examination and put your life to that work. And thanks for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much. We'll leave Chris Godchell to get to his law school studies, and we'll continue on to another of the contributors to Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Brant Rosen, rabbi of the Tzedek Chicago Congregation, is joining us via Zoom from the Chicago area. Brant, I am so very thankful that you chose to join us today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me, Mark. I understand that you've done a lot of these interviews And how did you connect with Carolyn Karcher for Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism? Carolyn, I believe, reached out to me shortly after the Jewish Voice for Peace National Members Meeting, which uh, was a few years ago. I think it was 2015 in Chicago, actually. And she wanted me to contribute to the book in a section where other rabbis, there was a whole section of rabbinic uh, testimonies or, or essays, and she wanted me to be part of that. And I've written and spoken about my own journey many times in different venues. I, I wrote a book about it, actually, back in 2012. So it's something I'm used to doing and something I think is important to do, because I think too often people just default into thinking that Judaism and Zionism are, are one and the same. And to be a Jew today, you have to be a Zionist, which is not necessarily true. And the converse is also true. There are plenty of Zionists who are not Jews, particularly Christian Zionism, which is a huge movement, millions of adherents throughout the world. So I really appreciate the opportunity to set some of those illusions straight. And I think there's no better way than by just telling your story. And I thought that was the genius of Carolyn's book, was that it wasn't a didactic book of ideology or abstractions, but she really wanted to hear people's personal stories. And from that point of view, I found your contribution to the book a bit interesting. As you mentioned, your 2012 book, which I haven't read, but which I saw the name of, Wrestling in the Daylight, A Rabbi's Path to Palestinian Solidarity. In your chapter, you shared a little bit of your personal experience in leaving your service as a rabbi and starting another synagogue right in Chicago, the area which you live. But you didn't share your background, particularly that got you to your Palestinian solidarity. And if I'd only just go read the book, I'd catch up on that. But could you share with our listeners some tidbits of what got you there? Sure. And I should say that Carolyn specifically asked me to write about the congregation and about the creation of a postmodern Judaism that did not include or assume Zionism. She specifically wanted to hear that, which is what we're doing in my congregation at Sedek Chicago, which we founded in 2015. But to backtrack a little bit, I am from Los Angeles. I grew up in a fairly progressive Jewish home. Uh, Israel was always a part of my Jewish identity. I have family in Israel. I've spent a fair amount of time in Israel. I've identified with Israel as a Jew and actually thought when I was in my early 20s about moving there for a period of time. I was there for about two years, largely living on kibbutz, and I was very much an adherent to labor Zionism at the time. There are many different forms of Zionism, and the kind I always identified with was the progressive left-wing edge of Zionism, labor Zionism, which was the Zionism of the founders of the state. 
I also believed that Zionism was, as I understood it, a liberation movement of the Jewish people, that after centuries of oppression culminating in the Holocaust, we needed to liberate ourselves through independence and a land of our own and our historic homeland, so to speak, so-called, which was at the time historic Palestine. So that was a very important part of my Jewish identity. Uh, at the same time, I would say I, would, I was, as I said, on the left edge of that. So I believed that Palestinians deserved a homeland of their own, too. I was an advocate for the two-state solution long before it became the mainline agenda. I'm old enough to remember back in the day when suggesting recognizing the PLO and having negotiations toward an independent Palestinian state alongside Israel was considered beyond the pale, was considered a radical notion. But I was... I I was very much involved in the peace movement, very much an advocate for the peace process and for some kind of plan that would allow Palestinians and Israelis to have states of their own side by side. I didn't move to Israel. I became a rabbi, congregational rabbi. I've always been very much a activist rabbi. I've always felt very strongly that congregations, Jewish synagogues should be more than just comfortable places to be that I wanted to, you know, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, as the saying goes. And so Israel-Palestine was always a, a major part of the activism that I was involved in. Over the years, my position changed, and it was a very slow process. I think it was a result of some internal conversations I had with myself over many years that I never really saw through. I just sort of banished them to the back of my head. But just issues that I have with Zionism itself— what is this liberation movement that was created on the backs of another people? How can you reckon with calling yourself a liberation movement when really it was a movement that created, a European movement that created colonies in another land? That kind of thing is typically called a colonial movement. <laughs> liberation movements are typically the struggles of uh, the peoples of that land who are already living in that land against the colonial powers who are occupying them. So I had a hard time reckoning with that. I had a hard time reckoning with the strong militarization of Israeli society when I considered myself anti-war, but somehow gave Israel a pass. I had a hard time with the notion of predicating an entire state on the identity of one particular group of people, particularly in a land that has been historically multicultural and multi-religious. If you predicate the identity of this nation state on the identity of Jews, then ipso facto non-Jews become an issue. They become a problem. And even liberal Jews, many liberal Jews, including myself, for many years when we would advocate for the peace process and the two-state solution, the main argument we had was that the Arab birth rate posed a demographic threat to the Jewish character of the state. And if we wanted Israel to remain, quote-unquote, Jewish and democratic, we needed to create two states alongside each other. Every once in a while, I'd hear myself advocating that way, and I'd think, I'm calling this group of people a demographic threat. <laughs> I mean, if I refer to any group of people in the United States as an American with those terms, that would just be incorrigibly racist without hesitation, I would say that. But somehow as a good liberal, quote unquote, liberal Zionist, I could use that argument without, you know, batting an eye, without really unpacking what it meant. And so these were all of the, the issues that I had that I never really fully reckoned with. But eventually I came to do that. There are a number of reasons for that. I think largely, I spent more and more time over the years in the West Bank and meeting with Palestinians and seeing firsthand what the reality of the occupation was. 
coming to realize that Zionism itself was the problem. It wasn't the quote-unquote occupation. It wasn't something that started in 67 after the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip created the so-called demographic threat. The problem was a colonial movement that came into historic Palestine, settled there with the express purpose of creating an independent state, and in the process, dispossessing and exiling hundreds of thousands of Palestinians Uh, turning most of them into refugees and creating what is now the largest refugee population in the world, six million. So I finally broke with Zionism when I was a congregational rabbi here in Evanston. And I became very publicly active in the Palestine Solidarity Movement. I was very involved with Jewish Voice for Peace. I helped found the Rabbinical Council of JVP. I was able to do that for quite a while, almost almost six or seven years. My congregation and I really struggled together to deal with this rabbi who had crossed this Rubicon very publicly. And to their credit, the leadership of my congregation always stood by my right to speak my conscience, even if many of them didn't agree with what I was saying. And we set up a system of, of open and civil discourse in the congregation on these issues. I made a point of always offering a disclaimer when I spoke about this issue, saying these are my views. They don't necessarily represent the views of my congregation. And we managed to work hard at that for a while until it just wasn't possible anymore. And that my activism on this issue just created dissension within the congregation among a group of people who just couldn't countenance the fact that their rabbi was saying and doing these things. And so in 2014, I I resigned from the congregation because the atmosphere just became too intolerable. Uh, It was very painful. It was very traumatic. It happened at the time in the fall of 2014, there was a, a horrible Israeli military onslaught in Gaza. And I was being very, very, I was full of anguish about that, as I had been with previous military assaults in Gaza. I was very public in my denouncing of it and denouncing what I considered and still consider to be war crimes by the Israel military against the people of Gaza. And um, I just couldn't stay silent. I couldn't, for the life of me, rein myself in when these things were not only going on, but going on in my name as a Jew. So... I left the congregation and almost immediately after that started working for the Quakers. Oh, really? For the American, American yes. You hang um, around with trash, don't you? No, 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 no. I would never dare say such a thing. I had, I had worked together with AFSC, American Friends Service Committee, for many years. And I considered them friends and comrades. And actually in, the Chicago, in Chicago, in the Chicago office, the Chicago office is the seat of the Midwest region of AFSC. And the man who was a Midwest regional director for many years, Michael McConnell, was a dear friend of mine. You know, he may have known as well. He was uh, kind of legendary in the immigrant justice community. He was a, uh, a UCC pastor who passed away tragically of cancer several years ago. And they were struggling to find someone to replace him. And staff in the office reached out to me and asked me to apply for the position. And they didn't know what was going on in my congregation. It just was almost serendipitous that it just happened at the same time and gave me a uh, a pretty soft landing place um, after leaving in very painful fashion my congregation to be able to work for an organization that even if it wasn't my personal faith tradition, it politically and in many ways spiritually allowed me to speak my truth without fear. I mean, I was constantly fearful when I spoke my truth as a Jewish con- in, a, in a Jewish congregation that people would get upset, that there'd be backlash, that the board of my congregation would be deluged with letters. Um, at AFSC, I could be myself. And um, what an odd concept, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it was a learning experience in so many ways. But no, I wasn't the first Jew to work for AFSC, and I wasn't the first rabbi either. Actually, a Rabbi Lynn Gottlieb, uh, who's a dear friend of mine, worked for them for several years in the Bay Area in their Israel Palestine program. 
they welcomed me with open arms. And the Jewish, the Jews on the staff at AFSC were really, really delighted that finally there was a <laughs> rabbi in the organization. Shortly after that, I started meeting with friends, including some folks who left the congregation, my former congregation, when I did, just to meet informally to do Jewish things together, to have Sabbath, Shabbat services and dinners and Passover Seder, just a place where we could hang our hat Jewishly. And that was the kernel for the beginning of this new congregation. Eventually, we decided to form a congregation. I did it part-time on the side while I worked at AFSC and became the founding rabbi of this new congregation, Sadek Chicago. It was very, very different than my former congregation, probably any congregation, in as much as we have very specific core values that we're founded on, that we stay explicitly, that we're not Zionist, that we stand in solidarity with all who are oppressed, all oppressed peoples, including Palestinians. And we wanted to create a congregation and a Judaism that focused on the diaspora as the home of the Jewish people, which has always been the case throughout thousands of years of Jewish history up until the onset of Zionism, which is really a modern movement, which overturned centuries of Jewish self-understanding. The congregation grew steadily to the point where I couldn't continue to do both anymore. AFSC was always wonderful and gracious and allowing me to do this on the side, but it grew much to my pleasure to the point where I had to make a decision. So this last January, I moved over to work exclusively for the congregation full-time and left very reluctantly my beloved community at AFSC, although they'll always be my allies and comrades and colleagues in many ways. So folks, if you just tuned in, we are speaking with Rabbi Brant Rosen. He is one of the contributors to the collection called Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation, edited by Carolyn Karcher, and we'll have her on just a little bit after this. Brant, you left the Reconstructionist Evanston Synagogue. I tend to think basically positively of Reconstructionist Jews. Marsha Prager is a name you probably know. Sure. Uh, she taught a week-long workshop at National Quaker Gathering, Friends General Conference that I took. I was definitely spiritually enriched and deepened by it. Had her come here to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and teach a weekend with her husband, Jack. Jack Kessler, yeah. And I had them both on my program, Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul. I tend to think Reconstructionists very positively, yet the questioning point of view that you had about Zionism was uncomfortable there. You formed Tzedek Chicago. I know Sadiq Katamar, the dance. Uh, Very good. Very good. It's the same word. And, you know, I know Hebrew words, all three letters form the roots, and then there's different things that come out of it. So Sadiq Katamar, Sadiq Chicago, what does that mean to those of us who don't speak Hebrew? The word tzedek literally means justice. But you're right. Every Hebrew, Hebrew is a very rich and multi-layered language, and every word has a three-letter root. And the three-letter root of tzedek is used in many different ways. So the, what you referred to, the Israeli dance, Sadiq Katamar, that's actually the words of that song are excerpt from the Psalms. I believe it's Psalm 118. Line is, the righteous shall grow like the palm trees. Sadiq Katamar. Sadiq, a righteous person or a just person. Katamar, like a palm tree. So that was turned into a folk song, was set to a dance that you're referring to. I think we chose that word in particular because I think in many ways has has been observed by many throughout history that peace without justice is no peace at all. You know, in a totalitarian state, there's peace. 
right? In the Jim Crow South, they worked hard to, quote unquote, keep the peace. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And they had laws against those who would, quote unquote, disturb the peace. So unless you have a foundation of justice, there can be no real peace. And I, personally speaking, as someone who was involved in the, quote unquote, peace process in Israel-Palestine for many years, I came to the conclusion that you can't have an equitable peace process if you have two sides that are on a very unlevel playing field. If you have the occupying force quote-unquote, negotiating with the occupied. When you have the power that's brokering these negotiations is a dishonest broker. In other words, is the, is the ally, the almost unconditional ally of the occupying force. That's not a context of justice. And unless there's a context of justice, there can really be no peace. As you say in your chapter in Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, the typical synagogue or Jewish temple are by default Zionist, even if they don't claim that as their title. When you left the Reconstructionist synagogue in Evanston and formed Sedek Chicago, you chose the designation non-Zionist. So there's Zionist, there's non-Zionist, and there's anti-Zionist. Could you explain how you perceive the difference between those appellations? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that there's any real formal difference between them. I am fully comfortable referring myself as a non-Zionist, as an anti-Zionist. I think I'm hesitant to call our congregation an anti-Zionist congregation only because that is defining ourselves in opposition to something. And in defining yourself in opposition to this thing, you're still giving that thing pride of place. You're still giving that thing the, the power to control the conversation. So in our core values, we say that we are non-Zionists, but that's not the slogan of our congregation. We don't advertise Sedek Chicago as the non-Zionist congregation. It's one value of many that we uphold. I'm also, though, I'm sympathetic to the countervailing argument. You know, Angela Davis was very famous for saying, when it comes to racism, you can't just be a non-racist. You have to be an anti-racist. It's right. not enough. That's what I was wondering. Just to say, I'm not this. You have to, if you see racism as something that is inherently immoral, then you have to stand in in counterdistinction to that. You know, for me, I think as a political platform, I agree with that. But if we're going to be founding a spiritual community, I think simply using a label that is exclusively in opposition to something that doesn't in any way express what it is that we're trying to create from a spiritual point of view, I think that's ultimately limiting. But as I said, On a political level, I I have no trouble because Zionism is a political movement. I have no trouble saying that I'm an anti-Zionist. I think Zionism is an inequitable ideology. It's a colonial, settler colonial ideology that privileges one people over another. I have no trouble saying I'm anti that ideology. What do you think of programs like Birthright, the idea that a Jew anywhere can come and settle in Israel because, you know, that's your birthright because you're Jewish? Well, I think it's racist. (laughs) I think there's something inherently unjust about going into a land, giving people of one group, people who have lived in the diaspora for most of their history, and millions of these Jews who don't consider Israel to be their home or their homeland can immediately go there and get instant citizenship when people who have lived there 
for many, many years have deep familial roots there and have been turned into refugees are forbidden for even entering that land, let alone becoming a citizen. And many of those who are in that land are being dispossessed through various means, through revocation of citizenship, through home demolition. There's something inherently wrong. This goes back to what I was saying about predicating the ideology of a state on one particular identity of people. The so-called law of return is just so deeply problematic. I don't think Jews throughout the millennia ever considered Israel, historic Palestine, Israel, the land of Israel, to be their homeland in the political sense of the term. It was a spiritualized idea. When we would say next year in Jerusalem at the end of the Passover Seder, or when we would pray for the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem, these were spiritual aspirations or ideals. They weren't political platforms. Zionism came to uh, turn all of that into a political movement which is, as I said, deeply problematic because that was done on the backs of another people and it continues to be. That dispossession continues to this day as we speak. And all of that makes sense. And yet one of the most powerful, persuasive for me issues has been the Holocaust, the Shoah, right? The systematic anti-Semitism of so many centuries. How do you deal with those strong feelings? I mean, it's it's a problem because people who are traumatized by having their lives threatened tend not to be usually reasoning people. Fear, even when it's been 50 years since it's been exercised on their heads, certainly carries a lot of weight. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I think we need to deal with it. I think the Holocaust, the Shoah was one of the most important transformative events of Jewish life in our time. It has created deep trauma. It's changed the face of the world Jewish community. European Jewry, which was a thriving locus of Jewish life, was completely, almost completely wiped out. You know, anyone who goes to Europe today and visits countries where Jews once lived, it's like going to a ghost town. The cataclysm that that created continues to resonate. We need to come to grips with it. We need to take it seriously and we need to respond to it in some way. The question is, what is our response going to be? I would argue that if our response, the response of creating a a Jewish nation state in historic Palestine with the express purpose of it being a haven for the Jewish people, I would say that that solution has failed miserably. The state of Israel is now a locus of great trauma for Jews. It is a garrison state. It's a state that has, it's one of the most militarized country in the world. It is literally building walls between itself and people that they're trying to keep at bay. Israeli society is a deeply, deeply traumatized society, not only in response to the Holocaust, but in response to living constantly with this hypervigilance about being wiped out. This narrative of we're surrounded by nations that want to wipe us out and we have to at all costs be vigilant against that. That's traumatizing in and of itself. So I don't think it's solved the issue of trauma. I think it's created trauma upon trauma. How do we respond to the Holocaust is a serious question. What I would advocate, what we try to do in the Judaism in our congregation and the movement that we're a part of is to find safety and security through solidarity. That we will only find it not by creating a state of our own on the backs of another people, but reaching out to other people who have been historically made vulnerable through solidarity with them is a different form of security, a different form of safety that I think is ultimately much healthier and more sustainable. 
And folks, we've been speaking with Rabbi Brant Rosen. He is rabbi at the Tzedek Chicago Synagogue. He's been a peace worker. I'm also specifically thankful to you, Brant, for your service with AFSC, American Friends Service Committee. I recognize the passion that lies deep within you and the love that you're trying to carry out for all people. And I thank you for doing that and for joining me here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. As I said, Brant, I would love to talk to you more, but we do have Carolyn Karcher on just a moment for Spirit in Action. So thank you again so much. Thank you. Be well. As we leave Rabbi Brant Rosen of Tzedek Chicago, we'll get to Carolyn Karcher in a moment. But first, a reminder that NordenSpiritRadio.org is where you'll find everything related to Spirit in Action. All of our programs of the past 15 years, links to our guests, the ability for you to comment on and rate all our programs. And don't forget the donate button, which is how you can do your part to make this work continue. But do that after you donate from your time and wallet to your invaluable local community radio station. Some 40 such stations carry our programs nationwide and so much more that informs, nurtures, and grows the communities in which they broadcast. But on to our third and final, for today, contributor to the book, Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation. Up next, we're talking to the editor who brought together the 40 essayists for this book, Carolyn Karcher. Carolyn taught English, Women's Studies, and American Studies at Temple University. I can see by the clock that we'll only get in a part of our visit with Carolyn Karcher this week, but we'll finish it next week with a couple more of the contributors to the book. Carolyn, thank you so very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for inviting me. I feel very privileged, and I'm very eager to join you. And thank you for putting together the collection called Stories of Personal Transformation, Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism. I especially am eager to hear, as you stay shared in your chapter in the book, how you got to the clarity to bring together all of these 40 people who have contributed to this book. It's a powerful work of personal stories, and that's what I love. So could we start, Caroline, with your personal story, your connection to Zionism? or your disconnection from it? Well, of course, I was brought up in a community that was very Zionist. So I received the usual Zionist education. And as I mentioned in my chapter, our Hebrew school teacher was somebody from the Israeli embassy, and our text was not the Torah, but Leon Uris's Exodus. You can't get a more Zionist education than that. Looking back, I realized that I never learned anything about the ethical principles of Judaism. Really, all I learned was Zionism, Israel, Zionism, Israel. I grew up entirely in Japan from 1950 until 1962. And even before 1950, I was still not in the U.S., (laughs) But you did have this definite rooting of family. You refer to the family that you have that came from Milwaukee, and that's kind of home to me. I'm in Eau Claire, Wisconsin right now, but I grew up just in the orbit of Milwaukee and actually lived there after I got back from the Peace Corps for eight years. So I really consider Milwaukee area kind of my home area. How does that play into your story about Zionism or anti-Zionism? Well, my mother's uncle's, uh, belonged to the same Zionist group that Golda Meir did. And as you know, Golda Meir was from Milwaukee. So Milwaukee was really a hotbed of Zionist activity. 
that plays very prominently into my story. My mother told me that my grandfather made a trip to Palestine while she was growing up, I believe, and then came back with two presents for my grandmother, one of which, well, both of which now belong to me, a silver necklace that she's wearing in a photograph I have of her, and a cameo. I never learned why he decided not to go and settle there with the family. They all remained in Milwaukee instead, but they remained ardent Zionists. My connection to Jews in Milwaukee was actually considerable, considering that one of my favorite pastimes is international folk dance, and that the weekly international folk dance led by Jim Sullivan was held at the Jewish Community Center on Prospect Ave. So I was there weekly for at least four years while I was in Milwaukee. Again, the dance from Israel is my favorite form of international folk dance. Now, you said that your mother's father chose not to do Aliyah. Right. And you never got a reason for it. No, never occurred to me to ask. Unfortunately, when, when, of so many questions one should have asked one's parents, but I, I didn't ask. And my mother never told me. Were there other members of your family who did perform Aliyah, did move to Israel? Yes. The ones I know about are on my father's side, actually. My father's first cousin and her husband, that whole part of the family was from Siberia, moved to Japan, and many of them settled in China, in Shanghai, in Tianjin. In 1948, when Israel was founded, I mean, they would have liked to come to the U.S., but they were unable to. They were now stateless because they no longer had Soviet citizenship. And so they did move to Israel and make Aliyah. They didn't actually stay there. Their son, whom we called Ika, stayed there and became a very well-known historian specializing in Chinese studies. Um, he was fluent in Mandarin. Their daughter and the rest, the cousin and her husband, whom I called aunt and uncle, moved back to Japan. And I became very friendly with my cousin, Josie, who had spent, I think, five or six years in Israel as a child. Those are the main people I know of in my family who made Aliyah. There's one of the stories that you tell in your chapter, playing a game, and I forget what the name you used for the, the bad guys, the Nazis. Uh, could you share that? I, it, that seems pivotal in one way of understanding, thinking about the discomfort about thinking about that threat to Judaism. Well, you will have noticed that the Holocaust comes up in many, many of the narratives. It had a tremendous impact, of course, on the entire Jewish community. Um, so uh, this was the first summer that my family spent in the mountain resort of Karizawa in Japan. I was invited by these three children, one of whom was my classmate, Pat Gersick, and the others were her older and younger sisters, to play a game with them. I had never heard anything about the Holocaust. My mother wouldn't, wouldn't dream of in introducing, of telling the children about anything so frightening or so threatening. She wanted to protect us. So when Pat invited me to play this game where we were escaping the Nazis, I had never heard of the Nazis, and the pronunciation seemed to me to be Nazi. I didn't know who the Nazis were, but I threw myself into the game along with my friends, and we were pedaling away on our bicycles. We were being pursued by Nazis. We eventually reached their home and ran up the stairs, barricaded ourselves behind the door, and soon somebody came and began pounding on the door, and our hearts nearly stopped. 
But it turned out to be the girl's mother. And she was horrified that we were playing this game and told us that we should never play it again, that we didn't have any reason to fear Nazis or pursuit by Nazis anymore, and that this was nothing to play a game about. And of course, when my mother heard about it, she felt exactly the same. My first memory of my mother telling me about the Holocaust or telling me anything about Zionism was probably... I, I was not in Karizau, it's in Tokyo, because I remember my bedroom in Tokyo very well. And I remember my mother sitting on the bed as she talked. But I'm assuming that my mother decided that in order to forestall my learning lessons like that from irresponsible classmates, that she should tell me what she knew and what she believed about Zionism and about the Holocaust. It's important to situate this in time as well, because you're older than I am. You're closer to World War II. I wasn't born until 1954. Much younger than I am. But to some degree, you know, I'm born after the Korean War. Yeah. And so maybe that's the closer conflict that I'm focused on. How old were you in your nutsy game age? I think I would have been about eight. So what lesson did you take from her about the Holocaust or about maybe a Jew's proper place in the world and Israel's proper place in the world? Well, my mother never said that a Jew's proper place in the world was Israel. That was never part of the lesson. But she began by talking about anti-Semitism, how it could never be overcome and that the Jews had been persecuted for centuries and centuries. I remember her mentioning that German Jews were an object lesson in the folly of believing that assimilation could save us, that German Jews had been the most assimilated group of Jews in the world, and look what happened to them. The Nazis rounded them up and sent them to concentration camps, and all six million Jews were killed. I mean, you must remember, I'm writing this decades after my mother told me. So I can't be absolutely sure that everything I'm saying is what she told me. I do remember the lesson about persecution very vividly and the belief that anti-Semitism was something that could never be eradicated. And I remember the object lesson about German Jews, but whether I was given all the details, such as six million people, that I can't say. It's interesting that this is the only time I, I remember my mother telling me anything like this, and my brother doesn't remember anything of this sort. My father, years and years later, I was in one of our many arguments with him, and I said, well, of course you think so because you're a Zionist. And he shot back, I was never a Zionist. And I was amazed because that was the first I ever heard that he was never a Zionist. I think what he meant was he never believed that Jews should make Aliyah to Israel. He was very, very proud of his American citizenship and very devoted to this country. And when he was draft, well, actually, he was not drafted because he was past draft age, but he insisted on, fight, on being in combat in World War II because he, he wanted to fight for this country. So I think he saw Zionism as dual loyalty that he did not want in any way to have his loyalty to the U.S. questioned or diluted. So I think that's what he meant. He seemed to feel superior to those members of our family who had not succeeded in getting American citizenship, of whom there were uh, quite a few at that time, although eventually they all did. I'm sorry I have to cut you off there, Carolyn, but we'll continue our visit with you next week, both the end of my talk with you and two other contributors to Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, 
Folks, you can listen to the full interviews with Chris Godshall, Brant Rosen, and Carolyn Karcher on our northernspiritradio.org site with lots of stories and insights that we just couldn't fit into the broadcast. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Our lives will feel the echo 